Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar Podcast. Good for you. We hope you enjoyed our special episode featuring Heather Ann Thompson's Pitt inaugural lecture last week. We now return to our regular programming as we present you with the third episode of Lent Term, our 27th episode overall, and what I suppose is now the 26th instalment in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. I'm Lewis DeFreitz, I'm a third year PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here at Cambridge, and this week I'm talking to Dr Emma Teitelman, who is the Mellon Research Fellow in American History, also here at the University of Cambridge. Emma is a historian of the 19th century United States with a focus on the state, labour history and the American political economy during Reconstruction and the Gilded Age. Emma completed her PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in 2017. As the Mellon Fellow, Emma is currently working on turning her dissertation into a book manuscript. She also teaches an MPhil class on the history of capitalism and very ably convenes the American History Graduate Workshop which is a forum that allows PhD students like myself to present their own work in its early stages. We're all very grateful for the work she does in that regard. Emma published a chapter titled Without Reserves in an edited collection entitled Social Reproduction Theory, Remapping Class, Recentering Oppression in 2017. And last year, she won the Louis Peltzer Memorial Award from the Organisation of American Historians for her essay, The Properties of Capitalism, Industrial Enclosures in the South and West After the American Civil War. That essay will appear in article form in the March 2020 issue of the Journal of American History. The paper she presented to the Cambridge American History Seminar is titled Class and State in America's Greater Reconstruction. She spoke to me about that paper and much more on Monday afternoon. Emma, thanks very much for joining me today. Can you tell me what the paper is about? Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, the paper is about public-private relationships in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. Um, and efforts to reorganize the South and the West. Um, and specifically, I look at the Freedmen's Bureau and the Indian Bureau and how they forged um, relationships with specific cohorts of economic and social elites um, who mostly came from places like New York City, Philadelphia, Boston, some from the mid Midwest. Um, and there are probably two key takeaways from the paper. It's actually a chapter from my forthcoming book, so it's not really a standalone piece. Um, one is that the central state forges connections to capitalists in their projects to um, first create a wage earning class in the South and then to um, sort of consolidate political authority and colonialism in the West. So that's one takeaway. The second is that um, this pattern of public and private governance, public-private coordination, encourages capitalists in the Northeast to organize themselves into new political formations. Um, and in this way, they end up having important, although sometimes subtle, influence on the ways that federal authorities govern. Mm -hmm. And how immediate in the aftermath of the Civil War are we talking here? Well, I mean, really the process begins during the Civil War, which is sort of a Foner-esque mm -hmm. argument. Um, but. The chronology of this chapter is probably like 1865 to 18, I think I end in 74, okay. when um, a bunch of these guys resign from their post in the federal government. So this is like very immediate. Very immediate, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, the point is that um, the war and reconstruction, it's this mo moment of rupture. And so these there are these opportunities forming for these relationships um, to come together and um, the Freedmen's Bureau, for example, is seeing 
kind of what they think is mass disorganization. The chapter before this sort of argues that it's not disorganization. It's a particular kind of political organization um, that freed people are struggling to create. Um, but the point is that there are these ruptures, and in these moments of crisis, um, the state reaches out for different resources and, and for political legitimacy and for ways to kind of circumvent their own limitations. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, capitalists are concerned about these crises and also um, organi organizing around the opportunities that they present. Right. And so what are these new relationships that you discuss, these new interactions? And yeah, well, I mean, I think what the chapter is trying to suggest that they take different forms. So sometimes they're kind of informal. Sometimes they become a little bit more formalized, but capitalists are still kind of working within the private realm. So um, in the South, they form uh, the Southern Famine Relief Commission, which is it's formally private. It's a philanthropic organization, but it works very, very closely with the Freedmen's Bureau. It actually uses the architecture of the Freedmen's Bureau to distribute relief. But it's very important that it remains private because Northeastern capitalists want to be distributing relief to Southern planters. And the Freedmen's Bureau is not allowed to do that because they weren't loyal. Mm -hmm. um, so there are ways in which these kinds of, you know, the character of the relationships matter a lot. Um, and then I show how kind of drawing on those precedents in the West, Congress really formalizes um, these relationships and capitalists are appointed to um, like a board of colonialism, basically, to oversee the way that colonialism is transforming and restructuring in the West. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is that in their formal roles within the state, capitalists um, can't really manage the kinds of political conflicts that arise within the state. Um, they're just too frustrated by it. They're not used to it. It's not what they want to do. They want autonomy from the state, so they end up resigning. Mm -hmm. And this, these efforts in the West, this like the Board of Indian Commissioners you discuss, so is it that they're taking direct precedent from efforts in the South? Um, I mean, I don't think it's the only precedent. Mm -hmm. There are other kinds of commissions before this point, but I think the composition, the people who are appointed... Um, and the kind of rationale for it, that it's this, it's framed as a sort of humanitarian body, um, which draws legitimacy from the kind of like moral righteousness of abolition and emancipation. So a lot of the people who are appointed to this board um, were directly involved in efforts in the South, um, both to push the you know, to win the war and then also to reorganize labor relations. So it's not that, you know, this is the first time there's ever a commission with presidential appointees, but in this moment there's a, you know, I really want to emphasize in the in the chapter and the broader project um, as well that if we're studying the state, you really have to also study the organization of society, the structures of society. And in this moment, um, there's a particular social um, class that's coming together through the Union War effort, through their opposition to um, the slave power and, and slavery. And so it's that kind of precedent, drawing on that particular social class that's coming together in the, that moment mm -hmm. um, that I think is significant. Yeah. And that's significant in the South and in the West alike. Yes. And so what do you think, uh, what's significant about the fact that you're studying these peripheries, the South and the West together? Like what do they offer? Yeah. Historian. 
Um, well, it's funny because this is kind of an, a new thing in studies of reconstruction to think about um, trans-regional processes of political incorporation, so social reorganization. But there's actually a longer tradition um, of historians comparing these two regions. Um, so historians of populism especially uh, drew connections between the South and the West because populism itself was a Southern and Western movement. And that's because basically capitalism developed so unevenly in the United States. So these are the kinds of underdeveloped regions, um, whereas the Northeast and kind of like Northern Midwest is where capital is concentrated and mm -hmm. where, um, you know, there's kind of long distance ownership of peripheral resources. So um, I'm certainly not one, the first one to do this either now or in the past 30 years. But I think um, one thing that I'm interested in, I think I'm sort of bringing these two strands together, the more recent and the older, because the more recent comparative approaches are looking at um, the ways that federal authorities approached and treated Native Americans in the West and formerly enslaved people in the South, less interested often in uneven capitalist development, which is what earlier I think historians were more interested in. Um, and so what I think my work, one of the things my work is, do, is doing is that, you know, I'm tracking uneven capitalist development, but I'm also tracking that unevenness within the regions. So if we think about um, colonial, the intersections between colonialism and capitalism in the West, it's not just that the West is relatively underdeveloped vis-a-vis -vis, like the Northeast, mm -hmm. but there are also extremely uneven dynamics forming um, in the ways that Native Americans relate to labor markets and to um, processes of capital accumulation. So I think showing how the, the comparative and trans-regional approach shows how there's unevenness not only across region, but also within these regions. Yeah. So these these efforts that you describe in the South and in the West, mm -hmm. so they're both, from what I understand, framed as benevolent, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, but you're you'd argue that there's like this obscures something deeper about the social relations that these efforts are trying to like engender and establish. So what social relations in particular are both of these trying to establish? I mean, yeah. they're basically what I would call capitalist social relations, mm -hmm. which is. Um, the following chapter looks at a trans-regional wave of land enclosure, which, so privatization of land that was formerly, you know, held in common or um, not explicitly privatized. So reorganizing relations of property, relations of labor, um, making it so that the vast majority of people don't have access to the means of their own subsistence but have to work mm -hmm. in order to live. These are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Household formations, um, you know, making sure that there are household relations, gender relations um, that will enable workers to go to work every day and for the whole process to um, be reproduced over time. Yeah. So how is this done specifically in the case of, for instance, the Board of Indian Commissioners in the West? How are, how are they looking to transform yeah. social relations of the Native Americans that they're dealing with? Well... This is where I think the differences between the South and the West are probably most acute. Mm -hmm. um, in the South, it's very clear that they want freed people to be like the Southern working class. 
um, and gradually white yeoman farmers um, get sort of enveloped into the, that process as well. Um, in the West, the goal is not necessarily to transform all Native peoples into wage workers, but it, it becomes an effect of colonialism. And yeah. it's much more protracted, much more gradual. It's a process that takes a really long time. Um, but the, the primary goal in this particular moment that I'm writing about in the chapter is to um, create conditions for capitalist development, which means um, gaining access to productive resources, especially, mm -hmm. which means, which is why um, forced native confinement to Indian reservations is so important. But there's also a lot of political kind of controversy over the costs of colonialism, which I write about a little bit. And um, in an effort to sort of reduce the costs of building colonialism, the Board of Indian Commissioners, um, it's kind of like a program of austerity. And so they sort of have this ideology of work, that work is moral, that work um, is kind of uplifting. Mm -hmm. But they also don't want the state to be spending so much on um, colonial processes. And so it, it's also kind of more politically expedient to try to um, make native peoples on reservations, the primary workforces on reservations. I don't really describe that in the chapter itself. Mm -hmm. It's something that like the broader project traces. Um, but you do see a little bit of native peoples becoming reservation laborers in this chapter. Yeah. And it's both kind of an ideological imperative, but also um, politically and institutionally maybe overdetermined, I guess, I would say. Mm -hmm. And you describe a couple of times in the chapter just reference to this kind of implementation of uh, a system of free labor capitalism in the South and the West. Could you describe quickly what that meant to the people trying to implement it? It meant a system organized around private property, wage labor, mm -hmm. nuclear household relations, things like that. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that is absolutely what well, I mean. It leads into my next question, which is like, how important is the implementation of a system like this to the people like the Northeastern capitalists that you describe? Yeah. How important to it, to them, is the implementation of these systems in what you call the peripheries? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very important. And it's not to say that every single capitalist in the Northeast has some kind of direct investment in Western or Southern development, mm. although many of them do. Um, it's also that the kinds of political struggles that are taking place amongst Native peoples in the West, amongst free people in the South, um, there are political struggles to, to either maintain or produce autonomous kind of political formations. And this is threatening to um, the integration of a capitalist con economy on the national scale. So mm -hmm. it's so my first chapter tracks um, these efforts, these native efforts and, and efforts on the part of formerly enslaved people to maintain or, or create new autonomous political communities. And those political communities are not trying to organize their economies around capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, a significant tension there. And that's one of the reasons why um, 
when freed people lay claims to um, the sea islands and try to, you know, organize their work collectively and create their own political institutions. They literally create like um, a proto-legislature there. Um, that's why it's so threatening because it precludes not only ex the extension of U.S. political authority, but also the integration of capitalism and some of the most potentially lucrative resources. Yeah. Uh, but this drive, like this drive towards the implementation of the system is kind of obscured, right? Well, the ideological justifications for it are not the same as what I'm talking about yeah. right now, right? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, there's a there's kind of a Christian um, moral justification for it, that this is going to produce an enlightened um, society, that it's in the interest of humanity, that if, you know, freed people are not working for wages, then um, it's going to violate the... the the rules of humanity and, and down the line they're going to starve and die and things like that so there's definitely a strong kind of moralizing ideological um worldview that makes all of this seem um to the people then natural and justified and yeah. preordained even and so both of the movements that you talk about, or both the efforts, the Southern Famine Relief Commission and the Board of Indian Commission, as like they're both like coalition movements, right? So it's a mix of interests there. I guess it's a mix of interests. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as so. There are you know businessmen, there are industrialists, bankers, social reformers, missionaries, clergymen. So yes, definitely a mix. Um, but they do share a kind of underlying. Uh, worldview mm -hmm. about the moral and economic supremacy of free labor. Yeah. And they might diverge on superficial political questions, but I think they're ultimately working um, towards a generally shared objective. Yeah. And would you say that so that there's a outside of like this shared view within this coalition? Did there exist like a bunch of alternative visions for the South and the West that weren't being represented through these organizations? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, freed peoples, certainly, <laughs> you know, those of Native Americans. Um, even within the federal government, there are ideas about um, not trying to centralize authority as much, not trying to um, integrate socially quite as much. Mm -hmm. But these bodies, especially the Board of Indian Commissioners, essentially fail, right? There's some interesting newspaper quotes that you give, like the Arizona Citizen describes the board as a body of heartless professional humanitarians, and the Los Angeles Herald questioned why colonial affairs were in the hands of such mercantile traders as William E. Dodge of New York. What is it that's like underlining and defining these critiques? Well, it's because they are pro-military. They want it to be in the hands of the military. Yeah. So it's like they can see it mm -hmm. when it's... And that's one of the reasons that capitalists, you know, there's capitalists behind the scene and then there's capitalists front and center. And that is like more politically um, controversial. Yeah. Which is why I think they, after this moment, they would prefer not to do <laughs> that kind of work. They would prefer to sort of organize behind the scenes yeah. informally. And does that specifically mean behind the military then in that case? No. 
Not necessarily. They don't. They are still anti-military. Yeah. Mostly for like reasons of, they think austerity and cost and mm-hmm. not wanting to tax. Yeah. The nation. So there's a as in, I guess in that case then that if it's scare quotes I don't know if you're going to use this. <laughs> if it's like these like capitalists yeah. once they step away from these kind of efforts. Yeah. So they're not looking to military intervention, but they're trusting the federal government to act in their own interests, right? Yeah, I mean, they yeah. still are pro-military intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just don't want the military to hold all of the authority. Mm-hmm. They don't trust them. It's too expensive. It's too autonomous. There aren't as many opportunities to um, wield influence within the military as there are in the Interior Department. Yeah. And what, and so I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there's a, like a, they can reasonably assume that the state, that is the government, mm-hmm. will be acting in their interests, that their interests are to some extent aligned. I think they, they assume that, but they also continuously work to make sure that that's true. Yeah. So they're still kind of exerting pressure even after they resign from the yeah. board of Indian commissioners. The Board of Indian Commissioners still exists. It's just um, kind of, I guess, understood more to be a symbolic rather than um, decision-making body. Um, yeah. Yeah. So how are they working after this? Like, what ways are they working behind the scenes? Oh, they still have philanthropic organizations that are petitioning the government. They still write to their um, to federal authorities of, in various institutions and say, will you please do X, Y, and Z, will you please send the military here because I have a mine here and it mm-hmm. needs to be protected. You know, it's much more um, informal kind of influence and one that's difficult, more difficult to see, Yeah. <laughs> more difficult to inspire, um, you know, conflict with settlers in the West. Mm-hmm. And is that something that comes out through the rest of the chapters of the dissertation? Then? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I guess how does this, chap- how does this chapter fit into the, the book? You talk in the start about like following this one company, Phelps, Dodge and Co. Yeah. Across the chapters of the book. Yeah. What does that offer? Um, well, Phelps Dodge was a very prominent firm. It was founded in New York City. And before the war, it was involved in cotton merchandising. Um, and then after the war, it invested in southern lumber and western mining, among many other ventures, a lot of railroads as well. Um, and William Dodge, who is the president, um, is who features in this particular chapter and most of the chapters, um, had a lot of intricate relationships with federal authorities. In the Freedmen's Bureau, he was on the Board of Commissioners, chaired you know, the Republican Party Convention in 1872. He shows up in a lot of places. Um, and so I think what Phelps Dodge, tracking Phelps Dodge, allows me to do probably two things. One is that it allows me to track in detail these kinds of relationships between capitalists and federal authorities. Um, And so that allows me to show how the state brings capitalists together in a new way in this period. But then it also, second second of all, it allows me to track the disparate experiences of the many different people who are affected by these structural changes, which is really not what this chapter is about. Um, The following chapters do this in much more detail. So Phelps Dodge um, encounters, you know, freed people in the South and white yeoman farmers. It encounters um, a 
Apache Indians, among many others, as well as Western mine workers in the West, uh, mine workers. (laughs) Um, So all of these different groups are interacting with Phelps Dodge in some capacity, but in very, very different ways. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is sort of a case study, but it allows me to look at these disparate experiences, track the very uneven relationships that form um, through and around Phelps Dodge's company. And so it, it, it shows that you know, there, there are these concrete material forces linking these regions, but they produce very uneven effects, very uneven social political formations. Yeah, great. And before we move on to some general questions, the title of the chapter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is Class and State in America's Greater Reconstruction, calls to mind Steve Hahn's famous article in the AHR on class and state in post-emancipation societies. How does the emergence of the new like public and private bodies that you sort of talk about that sought to engender new forms of social organisation in the South and West, how does that speak to Hahn's analysis of the unprecedented loss of power of the Southern planter class after the Civil War? Well, you really nailed you nailed it. Um, to be honest, I'm terrible at titles, and so this, I thought, was kind of a placeholder. I don't think it will be the title forever. But um, that said, I think... It is a bit of an homage because I completely agree with Han's analysis that all of this is contingent on the fall of the planter class. Mm-hmm. You know, they're no longer occupying Congress. They're no longer occupying um, the same positions of power that they once held. And that, without that, none of this happens. Um, but Han, and it's not just Han, it's also, I think, um, historians writing about Reconstruction in the 80s and 90s and maybe even into the 2000s, um, they were very much interested in relations of class and and processes of state formation, but they often um, looked at the state as if it was only composed of democratically elected legislative bodies. And this chapter does not, I mean, it definitely talks about Congress, but it's looking at institutions that are not democratically elected, and yet they still um, intersect with this emerging ruling class um, in informal ways, in ways that, you know, the working classes do not have access to. So it is, it's an homage to that earlier body of work, but it's also, I think, departing from it in its conception of the state and how the state is... You know, it's a it's a complicated ensemble. It's composed of many institutions, and those institutions are traversed by um, political class forces um, in ways that are both formal and informal. Mm-hmm. For me, at least, one of the strengths of the paper, and I'm guessing the project, is it never feels like you're taking too big of a step away when you when you go from like these elected bodies to these organisations. It never feels like you're making some like technical jump to get there you know these are often like one degree of separation removed from one another yeah thank you right so a couple of general questions to close emma what's a book or article you've read in the last year that's either inspired or challenged your approach um it's a very good question i don't know if this book has had a direct impact just yet because it's quite new but i've been reading amy offner's new book sorting sorting out the mixed economy sorting the mixed economy Mm -hmm. shoot (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, but it's really really smart and I I looked over the chapters actually 
as I was writing this one, just because she's such a she, she's such a beautiful writer. It's also about public-private relations, but in a very different context. Um, so that's why I say it's not directly um, shaping my my work at this moment, but thematically, it's linked, it's related, and um, it's a really good book. Yeah, it's well written as well. Very, very. Right. Uh, what's the most interesting place that you've been for research? I've been to m- many interesting places. Mm-hmm. They're interesting in different ways. You know, I went to Savannah. It's a beautiful city, very old. I also went to Riverside, California, which is, you know, I thought it was really interesting. It's kind of like very sprawly. The National Archives are there, and they're really surrounded by not very much. Um, it was a weird trip that I took there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like Riverside. Mm-hmm. Riverside. So you're going for Riverside? No, I don't know. Tucson was great. Mm-hmm. Savannah's great. Mm-hmm. Atlanta. All of them. All of them. And and the final question. We've been talking about this for nearly a year and a half. What yes. your answer to this is going to be. Emma Titleman, what is your favorite album? Um, in the past 12 to 18 months that we've talked about this question, I've come up with many different answers. Mm-hmm. And I'm sticking with my most recent one. It's Phil Oak's Chords of Fame. Okay. Which oh. is basically a best of. Mm-hmm. but it's the best of the best ofs. Yeah. And he was never like a kind of whole album kind of guy. It was never like right, concept yeah. albums. But it's like. the one, you know, it's the one that I've listened to the most, so I'm most accustomed to that arrangement of songs. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I love it so much. I think it's just, you know, it's musically not like the most technically sophisticated or beautiful, but I think in when I've been involved in, in like difficult political work or just scared or hopeful about p- politics in general i emotionally connect to phil oaks a lot yeah he really speaks to me yeah it's kind of like a guarded optimism that comes from it a lot yeah it's like s- tragic but hopeful yeah yeah if i lived here maybe it would be billy bragg i don't know but uh, you know <laughs> so i think i'd say it's a timely choice emma titleman thanks very much for talking to thank me you so much lewis Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast with Emma Titleman and myself. We'll be back next week with another interview from another presenter at our seminar. In the meantime, let your friends know about what we're doing here. Give us a rating and review wherever you can do that sort of thing. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at Comericanist and get in touch with us if you have feedback, suggestions or any other things that you'd like to tell us. Cheers.